Kurbus Klein is a certified financial planner, trust and estate practitioner, and general tax practitioner. He is known as a South African visionary on a mission to transform the financial services profession into a fully-fledged noble one. One blue-collar worker's life my team touch would touch eight people's lives negatively. I woke up one day and I told my wife, I can't go on like this. Corbus has authored four books and has also published over 200 professional articles on various topics in financial services magazines. You can actually retire at 55 if you start at age 25. You will have between 10 to 15 times your annual income. I believe retirement should not be before 70, to be honest with you. If you don't have 5 million at least in your kitty, you're not going to go on retirement. Corbus has received multiple awards for his outstanding contribution to the industry. I call it the free piggy bank system. I honestly believe it's the best thing this government or Minister of Finance will be doing for retirement. I will always remember as the day I sat next to my client's deathbed in hospital and I looked at him straight. I said to him, you know what, if you don't wake up tomorrow, Let's talk about ourselves and our journeys in the financial services space. And did you expect the level of recognition you've all achieved? I'm sure our followers would like to know some of the milestones that you've achieved over the years. Yeah, look, uh, thanks. Um, interesting enough, um, I'm 60 years old, just uh, that you're aware of it. But I obviously started at the young age of working and I joined the corporate world as a mechanical um, engineer uh, and studied towards that. I climbed the corporate ladder for 18 years um, up to divisional MD level. And after 18 years, I woke up one day and I realized, Kurbis, you know you're working for shareholders' interests and not stakeholders' interests. And what I meant by that is a lot of my success unfortunately came from severances and retrenchments in the corporate world to be profitable. And because of that, one blue-collar worker's life, my team touch, would touch eight people's lives negatively. I woke up one day and I told my wife, I can't go on like this. I need to do something different here. I need to find my why. I need to find my purpose. And somehow I need to connect it to my passion. At age 37, I need to do for the rest of my life, what I love doing. And I, I then took nine months, while I was still working, to find my why. And my why was actually easier than what I thought. It was to change people's lives while I changed my own life. My purpose was to be able to find something, to start a business at age 37, that can touch one person's life but then touch eight people's lives positively and not negatively. And after nine months, I found that in the financial services, mm -hmm. and I was able to then change people's lives while change my, changing my own life for the better. And I joined the financial services profession, and honestly, I've never looked back. Therefore, for the last 20 years, I've been operating in the financial services, changing people's lives while changing my own life through financial planning and specifically holistic financial planning. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, over that 20 years, things has worked out. You know, when you leave the corporate world with an incredible package and incentives and bonuses and all those things, to start a whole new career at age mm -hmm. 37 wow. is incredible. Mm -hmm. But the success 
the 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 self actualization I got from that you could not buy, and therefore wealth and life is not always about what you have or what you earn. It's what you give back and what you do. Amazing. Oddly, though, unlike Kurbus, <laughs> I've only been in the industry for sixteen years. Um, my why and my purpose, I think I found. I studied political science. I did my master's in social policy. But when I started looking for work, according to politics at the time, I was overqualified. And the p- first person to give me an opportunity was BJM. Yeah. And that was a stockbroking company. And I was willing to work my way up because we are always told, work your way up and you'll understand the benefits of it. And I did. And within eight to 10 months of working as an office administrator, I found my why. I wanted to be on the stockbroking desk. Yeah. I understood the correlation between politics and the markets. And it all started making sense why I needed to have studied political science. Mm-hmm. I was trying to run away from the financial sector because both my parents were in this banking yeah. and finance. And either way, the bug bit me. And once it bit me, 16 years later, I'm still doing what I love. I wake up every day wanting to expand my horizon. I'm still growing. I haven't hit the ceiling yet. Mm. I'm still yet to hit it. And I don't think with my barometer and my goals, I'll ever hit it. But it's okay. And I'm comfortable with that. So 16 years later, I'm an investment specialist. And I've worked my way from domestic markets. Mm. And I specialize in offshore now. Mm. I have always, for the past 16 years, been doing offshore and local. But I guess... The past four to six years, I've specialized solely on offshore. Perfect. Amazing. Amazing. Kobus, on to you. Um, what does holistic lifestyle financial planning entail? And how does it address, and what does it address in terms of financial concerns? You know, that's a hell of an interesting discussion point. And I'll tell you why. <coughs> Sorry. Because firstly, there's a lot of confusion between lifestyle financial planning and financial planning. Now, the first thing is, I see this a trend where financial advisors or planners referring to themselves as lifestyle financial planners or lifestyle financial advisors. So let me firstly say, I don't believe that is right or necessarily correct because financial planning is financial planning as a financial advisor. But what there is, is financial planners that want to focus on lifestyle financial planning in a sense of the clients or the future clients that have got lifestyle needs. So what's the difference between the two in the sense of, so normally most financial advisors out there, and considering we've got about 41,000 long-term insurance advisors, wealth managers, investment specialists, and healthcare brokers, etc. But most of the financial planners, planners that focus on active financial advice, they advise people on you should be one of the 6% at retirement that can afford to go on retirement. If you die too soon, you should be, your family should be okay. If you live too long, you, you should be okay. And if you get a critical illness or disability, then you should be also be okay. And are you paying too much tax and can you pay much tax? Now, that's called general advice. Yes. And you're going to be either fortunate enough with a good advisor to be one of the 6% that can go on retirement that the difference with lifestyle financial planning is it's completely different in the sense of you now are talking to clients about their dreams. 
about their goals. But you're actually talking about focusing and specializing on an individual's need. I want to send my child to an Ivy college or school or university. I want to not only be one of the 6% that go on retirement. No, I want to go on retirement at my means and my dreams, at my destination. And if I, at my retirement, want to go to Malta and take retirement there or Mauritius or in Cape Town or wherever, can you help me to make sure that I live a lifestyle that allow me to budget for that accordingly? And that's a big difference when you deal with people's dreams and then you can say, I'm a lifestyle financial planner or a financial planner that focuses on clients' lifestyles and their dreams, their goals, their children's dreams, and, yes, the problems in life that can come along. And how do I make sure there's enough contingency planning so that if my son or my daughter, under peer pressure, do the wrong things and gets involved with drugs... How can I deal with that to still make sure my house I want to buy one day at retirement can be bought, but I've got enough money to send my children to an institution that can take care of them. Otherwise, I'm going to throw my lifestyle plan out of the back door. I hope that makes a bit more sense. That makes sense. Any thoughts or inputs, Narato? I mean, how can individuals integrate it into their broader life goals? Actually, I agree with Kubas, and I keep saying this to people. Lifestyle financial planning is just personal attention. Just ensuring that everything else is taken care of along the lifestyle that you want to live. Ensuring that you've mitigated the risk. You can never really fully mitigate full risk, Mm -hmm. but you put contingency plans in place to ensure that the lifestyle that you want to live and the lifestyle that you believe you deserve to live, you can still live. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. Kubas, in your Blue Chip Digital Magazine article on retirement planning, uh, titled A Comprehensive Guide to Retirement Planning in South Africa, you did mention that retirement is a golden period for new pursuits. Can you say some of the examples and highlights of some of the bright spots for optimizing one retirement towards um, fulfilling their lifestyle? You know, we, we need to understand one thing. We work, let's say we start at 25 after studies and so on, mm-hmm. and we work to 65. That's a long period that we work. Interesting, <clears throat> if we take retirement and we get to, let's say, and we do lifestyle planning and you say you want to retire at 55, you can actually retire at 55 if you start at age 25. A simple principle is if you're from age 25, and why do, why do I refer to 25? Most people only start working at 25 after studies and so on. So if you're from age 25 to age 65, take 15% of your gross taxable income, and you invest that with a simple CPI annual increase and a simple CPI plus two growth rate on that investment, and you do that till age 55, you will have between 10 to 15 times your annual income. And if you have between 10 to 15 times your annual income in future value, and your annual income I'm referring to is the last year you're working, you can take comfortable retirement because there's a thing called compound growth and Albert Einstein calls it the eight wonder of the world you can't buy it you need to earn it so now let's say you get to 55 well let's take the average of 65 okay these days and some companies are bringing it forward to 60 I believe it's wrong I believe retirement should not be before 70 to be honest with you and if you look at the states if you look at the USA 
at the moment, over the last five years, the highest employment figure in the USA is age 70. People has gone on time, but it comes back because young people and some young people in America doesn't want to work or don't have to work because they get so many, so many funds and welfare. But do you know at age 65 you can still live for 30 years at least as long as you've worked in your career? So now if you haven't planned for those golden years and if you're not going to be proactive from age 60 or 65 onwards, firstly, the first thing is going to happen, you're going to go what I call cold turkey. If you haven't worked with a financial planner for the last five years before 65, have told you, don't go cold turkey. Don't only work and then you've earned 60,000 a month and suddenly you must live on 40,000 a month mm, because you haven't. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're not socially involved, uh -huh. if you're not going to post-retirement do something that's going to keep you active in the community, you're going to die much quicker than a person can say. So what I tell my clients is, let's work on a plan while we do the lifestyle financial planning side so you can have a lifestyle beyond retirement what else can you do now number one if you are in a skilled expertise if you want to call it that where you can run a consultancy beyond age 65 yep. and you can earn your own income you can become an entrepreneur you can buy a bucky and you're gonna pick up meat or furniture and deliver that mm -hmm. you can be involved with the church you can be involved with the hoa at your at your corporate um, um, estate where, you, where you're staying for instance so what are we doing to be proactive beyond retirement? And that is critical because the more proactive you are and if you've provided sufficiently for your retirement funding, normally you're going to provide for 75% because you're going to have less children in the house, less dependents, you're not, not have, going to have more, less expenses, the medical aid, you can scale down and all those things. But you still want to live at your standard of living you're used to. Mm. So get involved, get your clients to become socially involved, even if you're not going to earn income always. Yeah. Be part of the church, for instance, you know. Be part of community work. Be responsible. Because what I see is my clients, and I see them at least once or twice a year. These days, not physically anymore, virtually, but still <laughs> the same. And I can see my client that has been on pension for five years, watching cricket and rugby, all good things, or doing some other things on the couch. And I can see my clients that's actively busy every year. The one looks very old very quickly mm. if he survives. The other one looks very lively and energetic. So therefore, if you plan your retirement right, you need to plan for 30 years beyond retirement date. And you want that 30 years to be spent actively, either earning more money, keeping earning money, and sometimes it's not only that you need to earn money if you've done good lifestyle planning, it is because you want to live a life beyond retirement. Oddly, though, I'd like to interject there. We know that 94% of South Africans may not even have good retirement. We've seen a lot of people, when they shift jobs, they take their full pension, and then now, when they go to retirement, they've depleted whatever pension that they should have put in preservation, and the little that they do make out with, with the right or wrong advice, mm -hmm. they end up, the one-third that they do take, you end up seeing them splurge on big houses and buy the cars. <coughs> Instead of thinking about contingency plans of the little that you do still mm -hmm. have, yeah. how do I grow it and how does it sustain me? So I throw this to you, that the sad part is only 6% will be able to, with the right financial planning, if they started at the age of 25, 27. What happens to the ones that 
have blown the contingency plan or didn't blow, or blew the preservation mm. money. Yeah. What do you have to say to those people that are still working but have nothing in the reserves? Yeah, look, I mean, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned what we now call the 6% from suck rule, and it's so <laughs> true. And I mean, that's been around for the last 20, yeah. 25 years since mm-hmm. I've heard it, and you most probably as well. And it's still a true reflection yeah. of how many people can ke- really go on retirement. And then there's the 2% rule of people. You know, if you think that the average person in South Africa, the 6% you're talking about, I'm not talking about the 7 million people getting an old age grant, for yeah. instance, of yeah. just under 2,000 men. Goes on retirement at the approximately most probably 9,000, to 50 rand a month. And then you get a 2% that goes to maybe 15,000 plus a month. And if you don't have 5 million at least in your kitty, mm-hmm. you're not going to go on retirement living at least 60, 70% of your lifestyle. So that's where we as financial planners come in mm-hmm. and specifically certified financial planners where we have to educate, drive awareness, but lift the financial plan with the client so when life-changing events happen, those massive things that go wrong, what have we built up for that contingency planning? But at the end of the day, that 6% and the the, the 94% is not there. What can we do long-term? Because financial planning and retirement specifically happens over a minimum of 25 years. Mm. And if you don't work with a financial planner from age 25, a financial planner, you're never going to get there in any case because you can't buy compound growth. Mm. So the principle, what you're saying is right. How do we overcome that 6% and make it 20% and 25%? Now, I'm personally very excited about what people call a two-pot system, yep. what, I, okay. what, what some now call a free system, the free component system, and what I've just written, written an article in the Blue Chip Journal that was uh, 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 put out this week. I call it the free piggy bank system from my old young days <laughs> yes. when I used piggy banks to save. Okay. Now, that, and I don't want to go out of the point, but that is critical. I honestly believe it's the best thing this government or Minister of Finance will be doing for retirement mm. and for the taxpayer. Because remember, there's over 19,000 grants, of which 7 million is altered grants. Now, if you're going to be forced to save two-thirds of your retirement on resignation, because you know where most of the retirement money goes on resignation, not even a one-third. And I'm not talking, I'm talking before age 55. Yes. But after age 55, one-third... Fortunately, the rules changed a couple of years ago where Provident rules and pension fund rules was made the same, that you only can take one-third of the new contributions. That two-thirds is a massive future in the next 50 years for the next two generations that's going to prevent the 6%. It's not going to prevent, it's going to make the 6% become 20 30%. That's the interesting thing. But it comes back to education awareness of us as financial planners to make sure the 6% doesn't stay 6% for the next 50 years. Thanks for that response. Very amazing. interesting take on it. Amazing. It's amazing. I mean, whilst we still there, Kobus, we're going to segue into a very interesting point you raised about the profession itself. Uh, you did describe the financial service profession as noble. I mean, emphasizing um, mostly on emotional care of clients. Please shed more light on a specific experience focusing on the emotional aspects of your clientele and how were you able to navigate it successfully? I want to just come back to the noble side of it. We honestly, and you know, I think many people know me as passion for the profession, and I really have a passion for the profession, and I believe there's so much more than calling ourselves an industry, because we are not an industry. 
We are a profession. And when I say we are a noble profession, yes, teachers and education to me is one of the most noble professions there is. Sadly, they don't get paid according to what they do for our children and our future. But we as a noble profession changes people's lives. We make a huge difference. And now with artificial intelligence and technology and robo-advice and all these things that's out there, it could never replace our jobs. And you know why it could never replace our jobs? Because it still can't show empathy. As investment specialists, you will understand when the markets go volatile, mm. you know, robo-advice can change the algorithms and artificial intelligence can help to tell you where to move and what should be exotic investment, how much regulation 28 and all these things. But what it can't be is look at you in the eyes and show empathy, show understanding for that you shouldn't be worrying about this volatility. You should be staying invested and focused on spending time in the market and not timing the market. And the same when if somebody passes away, the same if somebody gets a dread disease or critical illness, or even if you as financial advisor took over the portfolio too late where compound interest couldn't kick in, now the person must go on retirement and he's only going to have 50% of his income and not 100% of his used to income. We need to lift that empathy. We need to lift that feeling with emotions. So take a typical um, example. I had a client, many years, 14 years, and he then got cancer. He's got three young children. I had life insurance, I had dread disease, I had impairment, I had the whole duty, and I had retirement. He was 46 years old. Now, unfortunately, um, firstly, we paid out the dread disease because he was terminal ill, and then 18 months later, he passed away. We then paid out the life covenant. That's a total of 16 million rand between all of those insurance. And now I'm talking maybe eight years ago. Now, those children were still young. We put up a trust account, and we set it up for him. But just as they were settling in and the wife was settling with the children, COVID started, and unfortunately, the wife got COVID. And the wife died two years ago. Again, in the process, we had all the insurances in place. And it was so wonderful to be able, and the kids were just about getting 18 and 20, and the one was 16, to that stage where they had no debt anymore. But now we could take that mum's money and put it into a trust account that was already created, and suddenly those three children would never have to worry about their lives anymore. But what I will always remember is the day I sat next to my client's deathbed in hospital, and I said to him, without mentioning, mentioning the person's name, I said to him, and I looked at him straight, I said to him, you know what? And I'm getting goosebumps when I say this. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. If you don't wake up tomorrow, your children will be taken care of. Because our planning over the last 14 years has made the difference. And he looked in my eyes, and he was emotional. Because you know you're going to die. And the doctors say you've got a week or two left. And that's why I visit him at his deathbed, like I've done with many clients. And I can then go back after the funeral, and I can sit in front of the wife and the three kids, I can tell them your life will never be a worry. Yeah. That is what we do. Yeah. Are we noble? Are we change people's lives? Yeah. Widows, orphans, mm. and we give them a future. I like that aspect because it now also gives in touch, as Kubus was saying, no algorithm, no artificial intelligence can actually give it the personal touch. Mm. When markets, we have seen them fluctuate, we've seen them go up, we have seen them go down. 
No <coughs> robo is going to stand in front of their clients like we do and explain what happens, the dips that have happened and that whatever goes down will eventually come up. It's <coughs> about the time being invested in there yep. and not panicking, removing the emotions and just regaining their trust and why we made the decisions in the first place to take the investments that we've put in place mm. and why we made those choices. That's the personal touch that exactly. we give all our clients exactly. exactly, and ensuring that they trust you as well. Remember as well, as our industry is, we are regulated, there's treating customers fairly. Yes. So we need to also ensure that whatever we put in place for our clients is treating them fairly and also ensuring that it will give them the output that they deserve or that they should be getting back because you've also done your KYC and understood what their needs are, understood what their goals are and what who they are and what they're trying to achieve, even succession planning. And that is exactly what Quibus has touched on, succession planning for his client's family, mm-hmm. ensuring that mm-hmm. whatever happens to the client at that time, there's a plan in place to ensure that the kids are taken care of, even the generation after. Yeah. Well, you said that so beautifully. <laughs> I have to say, I get goosebumps listening <laughs> to you. Awesome, awesome, yeah. Mm. She's amazing. And I think, Lerato, we've talked about markets. I mean, markets are extremely volatile, especially if you look at it in the global context. Geopolitics on its own. We're hearing stuff in the news. Extremely fragile again. So in the balance between trying to address local in, and um, offshore investment opportunities, can you guys just guide us on... Or our followers, to be specific, on the practical smart strategies that investors can adopt to navigate uh, these complex times. Now, look, let, let me start and let me just keep it to financial planning. Mm. As I said, to me, the most important thing, and when I have an introductory meeting with clients, interesting, and these days I don't have a lot because I don't take on new clients anymore because I've got a practice that's very fulfilled and, yeah. and successful. But it's very important that when I have my introductory meetings, First thing is I look my client in eyes after I've done the, the legal stuff and all the inductive. And I said to him, John, if you're lying on that operation table and I'm the cardiovascular specialist, and I refer to the CFP as the cardiovascular yeah. specialist, the GP is the normal advisor out there. I don't mean anything negative <laughs> about it. <coughs> but I'm the cardiovascular specialist. John, are you going to tell me what to do to operate on you? Or are you going to allow me to use my intellectual property and my skills and my expertise to save your life. Now, John, if you say yes, as your financial planner, when the markets get volatile, when the politicians say the wrong things, when there's an Israel-Hamas war or a a war anywhere in the world, are you going to tell me what to do? (laughs) Or are you going to allow me as the expert with my expert um, wealth advisor or my DFM, are you going to allow me to run your portfolio fully. Or you're going to listen to friends and colleagues. And and I'm not trying to be arrogant, John. I'm telling you, because we need to work together. This is a matrimonial financial planning client relationship. And, John, if you feel that's the way we're going to do it, then we're going to work together very nicely. Because when the markets hit the storms, when the perfect storm comes, as we've seen in 2008, 2009, wow. 2015, 2020, I can go through many of them. Yeah. You need to trust me implicitly. Yeah. 
because I am the expert with my support team that gives me investment advice and that where we select the right portfolios with not speculation in the market and not 100% offshore or 100% locally or not all in property or bonds and equity, no. We want a well-diversified, balanced portfolio and if it's compulsory money, Regulation 28 portfolio. And John, they, when we do this lifestyle planning, and you're going to tell me, but when I go on retirement, I want to go and live offshore. Well, John, then I'm going to maximize your offshore portfolio, of course. Mm -hmm. But within Regulation 28, only 45%. But with your voluntary uh, money, we're going to take offshore. Why? Because you're going to buy in a different currency. But John, are you going to stay in South Africa? Well, if you're going to stay in South Africa, we're going to use Regulation 28 purely for exposure to offshore to boost growth. Not because we'll be able to have the currency is going to depreciate yeah. to 20. Because John, are you still going to buy at retirement in South African rand? Or are you going to buy in dollar? Maybe a holiday you want to go in dollar or pounds. Well, for that portion, we're going to put a, a portion voluntary capital offshore. But John, the most important thing is, I am your expert. And therefore, when the markets hit the perfect storm, then don't read the personal financial times. Don't read the summer TV or watch summer TV. Go to the sports. Hopefully the rugby has been good and the cricket has been good or Bafana has not been too bad. Go to it and read the sports pages and leave the rest to me because I will focus on spending time in the market and not trying to time the market. That is actually well put and well said, Corbus. Investment diversification. And also for the client to understand that it's not for them to worry about it. It's for the investment team to worry about it. Financial planners, wealth managers, investment specialists working together, ensuring that you are diversified enough exactly. to mitigate any risk. Understanding, obviously, where you want to end up. Yep. Are you going to stay in South Africa? Actually, even on the other hand, I always say I'm pro-South African. I'm wholeheartedly pro-South African, and I believe in Kubis's live and stay here. Yeah. But I'm also ensuring that my lineage mm. has exposure yes. to be able to move overseas as and when they need it. Yep. So investment-wise, I'm mitigating that and ensuring that they have that flexibility, portability to move anywhere where they want. So my investments are diversified enough to ensure that Whatever happens to me, even if they're overseas, they'll be able to access it while they wait for the estate to be wound up here locally as well. Perfect. I, I don't want to, and I'm not going to mention names, but you've made some one or two points. <laughs> uh, it frustrates me, it irritates me, and I'm surprised the FSEA and people don't take action against people, and it's specifically well-known and respected people mm. out there that says, sell all your RAs, sell all your preserver funds, resign from your provident pension fund and take all your money offshore after paying 36% tax because you, don't, you shouldn't keep your money in South Africa. doesn't matter if you're going to stay here or not. And I think you know who some of these people I'm talking about. Sadly, that is absolute negligent advice. It is. That should never be allowed because you can't pay 36%, even if the currency is going to de depreciate over 20 years at 6% per year. If you're going to stay in South Africa and earn your retirement money in South Africa, sadly, that happens a lot. So what you're saying is, yes, exposing, but don't put 100% of your eggs in one basket. Amazing. Lerato, you know, there are folks out there that would like to know, how does the chosen jurisdiction investment platform impact on the quest to making one's money? <coughs> spec we talk of hard-earned money to work for them. I mean, 
Can you please provide some insights on uh, on the decision making process when you select uh, these elements? For me, I always say once you've decided to go offshore, go offshore, pull the plug. Don't time the market and try and see when is the right time for you to enter the market. Mm. I'll keep reiterating this and I'll keep saying it. Understand who you are, what you want, what your goals are, and what you're trying to achieve with your money. Jurisdiction-wise, you have to also do the right research to understand taxation and which jurisdiction you want to invest in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've got the right financial planner with the right wealth manager and investment specialist behind them, then they'll also be able to profile you. Yeah. And within the profiling system, they'll also understand the amount of money you want to invest which jurisdiction is right for you and your money and what you're trying to achieve, taxation impacts if you're going to be double taxed and how much. Mm. Understanding all of that impacts you and which jurisdiction you're going to be investing in. Mm. And also there are huge benefits of investing offshore. I'm not saying invest offshore 100%. Mm. I'm just saying there are huge benefits of investing offshore because there is hard currency, soft currency issues as Mm. well. You can go off as a soft currency and earn the benefits of it in hard currency and bring it back. Yeah. And that makes a huge impact. Earlier, I did say in one of the other podcasts was that there's clients that have been waiting to go offshore since the beginning of the year. I mentioned that at that time, fair value for me was anything between 15 and 16. Mm. They could have gone. Yes. But they decided to hold on to their money and they said that they're going to wait until it hits 16 rand 50 to the dollar. Mm. We are now sitting at 19, mm. and they're still sitting there. If they had gone off at the time that we had advised them to go off, mm. they would have earned the benefits of that hard currency and bringing it back for contingency matters. Yeah. Good point. Sorry, I wanted to make yeah. one last point. You know, considering that in South Africa, our GDP to international is 0.4%. So you could never be 100% exposed to only South Africa. Even if mm. we love South African equity yeah. mm. and our fund managers, that would be a fallacy yep. if you only got 0.4% of the global, global market. Yeah. And therefore, yes, you have to diversify. Sorry. Exactly. Kobas, I actually wanted to, to, you to add further onto this. I mean, these experiences and conversations that you have on a daily basis, I mean, what considerations are people looking at when they're trying to I mean, straddle between local and offshore? Look, to me, it is either if you're talking compulsory money, you have to consider Regulation 28. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that most of my compulsory capital is 44 to 45% offshore, of, of which some of it is in emerging countries, as mm-hmm. we know, in Africa and so on. So that, to me, is a given at the moment. And yes, I'm not going to try to time it between $13 to $17. Obviously, there's a nice window of opportunity. Anybody thinking we're going to go lower than 15 14 13 or... If it depends what happens in election next year, only if a great opposition party or PAC can get together, maybe two years down the line, we can go back to 13, 12 or 11 even. But we know we're not living in that world at the moment. So when it comes to compulsory money, I'm very, very, very simple. We are trying to maximize the 45% through a diversified fund. So I have a simple philosophy. I have seven funds. Normally, in a portfolio, I select. Mm-hmm. In that seven funds, I select four fund managers, and I'm not going to mention name, but it will be you know rep- reputable fund managers that's proven themselves over 50, 60 years or 20 years 
it may have a small boutique fund here and, here and there. If I've got a specific income fund, I want to specialise in for drawdowns from living annuities. Mm-hmm. But in that four fund managers, seven funds, I would also have four asset classes normally. Uh, and between equity, property, bonds, etc. I mean, bonds in South Africa is great at the moment. Uh, why not take that opportunity? Property has got off the COVID opportunity let's call it that (laughs) you know uh, opportunity and sometimes you must but again it's not about trying to be clever trying to to grab that it's just part of your portfolio mix and in that four asset classes and i would always have the local offshore voluntary capital i'll be much more aggressive these days so i would want to have 50 to 60 percent offshore not because i'm taking my money offshore but I want that exposure. And some may yeah. be direct offshore with my clients' 1 million discretionary allowance or the 10 million uh, uh, forex allowance. Um, that may be direct uh, offshore allocated. But I'll also like these tracker funds or structured funds that is offshore exposed. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily move out, but can still in, and you don't need your discretionary allowance. So from a voluntary perspective, it is about taking the long-term view. I do not take a view shorter than five years. Mm-hmm. And if clients want to, I tell them, then um, go to Citrix 40 or go to um, uh, equ- uh, Easy Equities and, mm-hmm. and, and, and go speculate there, you know, um, because that's, but don't put more than 10% of your port- portfolio in there. Or if you want to be exotic and you really want Bitcoin or Ethereum and so on, um, you know, be, be aware you can lose that money 100% yeah. by going to the casino. <laughs> but it doesn't mean if you do have a great portfolio, you can't put 2 or 3% in there. Yeah. At the, and there you should be timing it and not buying at 60000 but maybe at 15000 yeah. And now it's at 36000 as an example, you know. But that's speculation. That is not how you as a long-term financial planner should advise. Mm-hmm. Leave that to the... To let's call it the exotic investment specialists, you know, yeah. they can do that. Yeah. And if my clients want to go there, they must go there. But for me, five year view, preferably a seven year view. And if you're doing a lot of compulsory money, a 30 year view. And if you take a 30 year view, you're not going to go wrong. I like that. I like that because for voluntary money, mm. in all honesty, I would actually say 60% offshore, 40% yeah. local. Yeah. And there's a huge benefit in that type of structure as well. And then, obviously, compulsory money is restricted to the 45% rule. We've seen a lot of DFMs as well holding at a 38%. They're still phasing the money to hit that 45%, mm-hmm. which they're allowed. Yes. And they're taking caution with their clients' money. <laughs> they're not going to hit push play. Let's go ex- extreme 45. So they're actually just merging it in slowly to that 45. Perfect, perfect. I think let's further discuss on... The South African out there who wants to participate in the global financial markets. I mean, um, the recent grade listing setback. I mean, let's talk about it. How can a South African investor forge new paths and still be part of that global investment community? Can you just say some best practices um, practices to adapt into these challenges? The nice thing is, and... Grade listing is grade listing. Mauritius was grade listed a couple of years ago and it took them a year and a half to get out of it. Mm. We and the South African government actually foresees us getting out of it within the next 18 months. And I'm pro the 18 months. It's realistic. But South African investors need to understand one thing. Grade listing doesn't mean that offshore, they're not going to touch you. It's just an extra layer of DD that's added on. And if you can submit and show source of funds and everything else and how you accumulated everything, then there are a lot of eligible platforms and a, a lot of eligible funds that are willing 
to have you as an investor and taking that money offshore as you see fit. I have to agree. Uh, I couldn't say it better. Well done. Amazing. Thank you so much, Loretta. I mean, um, how is the trend of uh, semi-migration and immigration, to be specific, I mean, impacted yourself, Cobas, and your clientele in terms of their lifestyle and financial flows? <coughs> I mean, what are, are there any success stories and what are some of the pitfalls that you come across when people make these decisions for themselves? It's a sad topic and a topic I have far too much in discussions mm. around this topic. We unfortunately are having a serious brain drain, skills drain, tax drain, mm. if I can call it, it's like a drain, it's just getting bigger and bigger. Semigration, obviously, even from Gauteng and all the other places to even the Western Cape is a problem mm. because you're moving a lot of skills out of Gauteng where the money is normally made. But um, expatting, uh, let's start there and then talk immigration, is a serious problem. We And I can tell you, my client base is very diversified through all populations and there's I, I can't single out any culture or populations that's doing it, it's happening through all of them. And I can't even single out skill levels because it happened to my high net worth clients, my professionals, and my elder clients that moves with their children, etc. We have a serious problem with people leaving our country. I'm so happy that I've been able over the last three years to turn my, what I used to have, an office-based practice where 95% of my clients came out of my office in Cape Town, Durban, or here in Joburg, into an absolute 99% virtual digital practice. And at my age of 60, <laughs> it's not, a, and if your average client is 55, it's <laughs> never easy, but I embraced it, I love technology, and yeah. I converted, but I did not only convert my practice into a virtual digital practice, I converted it into a borderless practice. Now, that is also important. And that simply means because I'm very fortunate to work with service providers that offer me uh, offshore funds, direct offshore investment, local investments, all of that, my clients that move stay my clients. And if I say 100% stay my clients, then I'm telling you 100%. Because their policies, for instance, their risk policies is international, will still pay out international, apart from, and only, the only disclosure they must make is if they go to a war-torn country or they yeah. would now have to go to Israel, maybe, <laughs> or, or to Ukraine. Yeah. Because there's a risk there. Yeah. But because the insurable interest was in South Africa, and we, may, many people don't know it, your life cover policy, dread disease policy, will still cover you. It doesn't matter if you immigrate or yeah. stay in this country. Yeah. Firstly. Secondly, your investments, because I do a lot of offshore investments, especially if my fi- client's financial life plan is to move offshore or to immigrate or to go an expat, the money is already there. And because I've got a borderless practice, I advise my clients on an ongoing basis. I have many of my clients in the USA, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Scotland, Ireland, that invest their offshore income through me, yeah. through Jersey or Isle of Man, through local companies. Yeah. So there's no reason to be concerned about it, but you should be concerned about it if you, as a financial planner in South Africa or an investment specialist, focus only on South Africa Mm. and cannot communicate with your clients virtually and digitally. So therefore, it's a fantastic uh, opportunity for me, actually, because my clients earn much more money than dollars. I mean, just uh, three months ago, one of my clients in the States that's got an online education platform says, I've got a million dollars to invest, and that's in three months' income. And 15 million rand or 18 million rand is quite nice to invest. Do I invest it in South Africa? Of course not. I invest it offshore. Mm. 
in mm. any currency, any sterling, euro, dollar that you want to, and they can pay it out in any bank in the world, in any currency. Right, I know you're itching to speak more about this. Actually, that was well said. I think this one is Quivis's, because in all honesty, I'm fully offshore. Mm. So when we talk about migration and immigration, for me, it benefits me in the long run anyway. Because I am now selling, going to Isle of Man, yep. investing there, understanding that wherever you are in the world, I am accessible to you. Yeah. And my funds are accessible to you. So what is, Im- what is important here? Yeah. But you see both sides of the coin. So many people really believe the grass is green on the other side. And mm. many people do it for their children. Absolutely. I can't fault them. I mean, I'm proud as South African. I'm staying and I'm going nowhere. But my children must go. I have to accept it yeah. for opportunities maybe. And, mm. and many, and not only doctors, psychologists. I mean, they don't want to work anymore. They want to go work somewhere else because they want to get, pick up new expertise, new skills, then come back maybe. The important thing is don't go lock, stock and barrel if you understand what I'm saying. Don't sell everything because you've got this know-how that you want to go and expat and immigrate on a more permanent basis. Mm. Because unfortunately, I have seen too many of my clients come back after six months or nine months because the culture is different. Yeah. People are not as friendly as us in South Africa. People, uh, the weather is atrocious in many of those <laughs> countries. And uh, the bosses are, are even more <laughs> difficult in those countries. Yeah. So all I'm saying is when you want to immigrate or expat, or when you as an advisor advising your clients, because I'm so happy my clients always come to me when they even start thinking about expatting or immigrating, because you need to advise them accordingly. Mm. And the one thing is, don't sell your house yet, just rent it out. Don't sell your car yet, just let your son drive with it, hopefully he's not going to crash it. But you know what I'm saying. And that is where ours as advisors, we play a huge role to make sure if our clients fail or find that, oh, it's a lonely place, this, and it's a, the weirdest cold minus 20, maybe they can come back still and have wealth in South Africa. Yeah, exactly. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Rato, you are constantly on the road, and your role demands that you travel quite often. I mean, before Kubas outlines the working from travel and work from anywhere trends, I mean, do individuals seek more globally oriented lifestyles? And how can this going trend influence career choice and also their financial planning needs? For me, work is living and living is working. Yeah. My job is 60% travel. Mm. I am literally hired to expand, obviously, our footprint here in South Africa mm. and expand it into Africa. So I'm always on the road. And it's a benefit to me. Being able to do remote working from wherever I am, but also ensuring that I do what I need to do in order to achieve the targets that I'm supposed to achieve. I mean, working from anywhere, we've seen a huge growth of remote working. We've seen there are a few companies in South Africa where some have started coming back into work, but with that as well, it's floating because they'll come in for two days within the week. And that is a good evolution because it's about the workforce. It's about the input and not about being there from nine to five because a person can sit in front of you nine to five, but the output there is zero. Yeah. I remember um, 2019, I had an office-based practice and 
I maybe had a 10%, let's call it, digital practice, mostly with my expat clients, Cape Town, Durban clients, or Bloemfontein, and most probably Skype and those things. And I was one of those, and I'll never forget it, March 2020, and I just saw <laughs> opportunity when this, because I always wanted to go more virtual, more digital, even as an older person, I just love technology, fortunately. And um, when COVID came, it brought vir virtual working, digital working technology forward by five to ten years yeah. in a question of one year to two years. And I then initially, obviously working from home was the buzzword, and it was great, and I, I said, it's not bad, I need to get my clients now. Yeah. And I actually decided to lock myself down and my family for 100 days. And uh, because I knew it wasn't going to be 21 days or 45 yeah. days or 49 days because I saw what my MDRT friends did internationally with their clients because they were four or five months before us with mm, Wuhan yeah. and all these things. And then I said, well, this is nice, but then when the, we started being able to travel interprovisionally and so on, uh, I came up with the term working from anywhere. Mm. And then um, as it opened up and the borders opened up again, Working from travel became an interesting thing. But then I said, at the end of the day, it's all working from anywhere. Yeah. But working from travel is very interesting because we used to go overseas five times a year, but it would be a week. Two weeks would be a long time to go overseas. Now, if you're working from travel, if I went to Japan uh, this year or to um, Italy last year, I can book a month. Yeah. And you know what's interesting about working from travel, internationally I'm talking now, yeah. if you book more than 28 days, they call it long stay on bookings.com or yeah. Airbnb. Yeah. You pay a one-third to one-fifth of the price wow. of normal staying. I could go and stay in Italy in the most busiest and beautiful street for 28 days or longer for 25000 or 15000 or 20000 a month, yeah. where it would normally cost you 900000 to yeah. go and stay for two weeks. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So if you embrace this whole thing working from anywhere, and to put it in simple perspective... <coughs> so, last year, uh, my wife and myself spent 162 days working from anywhere away from home. Wow. So, working from home, because I don't have an office anymore, 99% I work from either from home or working from anywhere or working from travel. And in that 162 days, we visited all nine provinces at least once, every, at least once a month for a week, and all nine provinces, some more than obviously, because when you're 162 days, that's a lot away from home. Wow. But I would go to Plet in November last year, there was a small conference, and I would book in from the 1st of November to the 29th of November. I'll pay 27,000 rand versus 90,000 rand on the beach, on the lagoon. I could do that because my virtual technology, my screens, my computers, my inverter, my Wi-Fi boosters, yeah. everything goes with me, yeah. my, uh, and, and we can work there. I still see four or five clients a day, all on Zoom or Teams or Google Hangout. My clients could do options on it. This year, we were on 132 days. Wow. Um, last week, I was a week on the Val River, sitting on the Val River, doing 25 appointments over the week, as an example. So what this new world has brought us, has brought our clients, is a lifestyle that's completely different than going to an office every day. But it also gives you efficiency, proficiency, yeah. productivity, because you yeah. feel so much more positive when you see the beautiful rivers or the dam or the bush or the sea. Yeah. So we must never underestimate the value as financial advisors or investment specialists of being able to work from anywhere mm. and just take advantage of it because that is a lifestyle yep. that we could never have in the old world. 
And we should not think we're going to go back to the old world. Maybe financial advisors want to go back to some of them, yeah. but your clients are not going to want to go back to that world of traveling to your office or you know, waiting for meetings and so on. So actually, it's got a huge benefit. Great stuff, great stuff. I mean, to, to close it off, uh, Kubeth, I mean, in light of the recent uh, proudly South African achievements like the um, Springboks, World Bellies, Trump, I mean, how can South Africans inspire people globally? in the face of challenges, and also foster unity and resilience. I mean, share your professional perspectives on overcoming obstacles and building a sense of solidarity. I mean, uh, I'm staying hashtag. Look, at the end of the day, I'm really one of those South Africans that's patriotic, and I'm actually addictive to it, and it's a bad thing because my house and my car and everything (laughs) I have has got South African flags and South African... Uh, clothing and South African caps and everything owned to it. And my, my granddaughter, seven years old, has become worse than me. And I've never <laughs> influenced her. She, we can't drive past a flag post and there's a flag. Yeah. When the Springboks play, she's got a whole kit on, from her Crocs to her socks to her clothing to her cap. It's all Springboks, you know, yeah. all South African flags. Now, when you're that patriotic, and I really mean it in a, in a, in a very pr- professional way, you, you love your country, you love what you do, you love the Springboks performing, you love the cricket players nearly winning the semi-final, <laughs> you know, if they were just a bit started off a bit better. But, I mean, these things are going to happen. Yeah. But at least we won one of the World Cups. And yeah. we need in South Africa, because of our problems and politics and concerns and economy, we need some good love stories. Yeah. And I was at the FBI convention this last two days, oh, sorry, yesterday, the last two days, and I listened to the last uh, talk was Brent Lindeke from uh, The Good Things Guy and yeah. if you ever want to get positive yeah. I mean this guy started the movement in the world The Good Things Guy or Just Give and um, that, that's what you want to hear what can we South Africans do to uplift not only our country but use our country as an example for other struggling companies yeah. that sport can make a difference that financial advances can make a difference that the political guys can't always, but hopefully there's new ones. That, because it's about leadership. Yeah. Uh, it's not about politics. Yeah. It's about leadership. And how can we prove <coughs> and not only talk about being South African, but live being South Africa, yeah. live being proudly South African, live, I'm staying. Yeah. And if you're leaving uh, to go overseas with your kids, it doesn't mean you're not patriotic. It just mm. means there's opportunities yeah. out there. And you're becoming like we should be in the world, a borderless world. And therefore, to me, sport is one way, but we as people are the way. So we must be stronger together as people. And I don't care what your race is or colour is. It should not be about that. It should be about what are you doing? A part of moaning. Are you part of the solution of this country? And as financial planners, obviously, we can be a big part of the solution to the country because if we educate clients how to use finances and economies and understand the bad, the good, and going with it, we can make a positive difference and investment specialists. And everybody in the financial service can make a positive difference to how people feel in this country. And to me, it's all about being positive because there's always going to be problems. But if you think South Africa's got problems, let me tell you, when you travel, and when I travel... I'm so happy to come to Joe, to, to Owartambo mm. and see friendly faces and see great weather and not see hurricanes and, I mean, all the nuns and not see five ministers in the UK or, you know, prime ministers or see other people fighting in cabinets. Mm. It's not only our people that does that. The world has got bigger problems. Mm. 
we have our problems. Load shedding may be a problem. But it's actually more opportunities as well. Yeah. How are we dealing with load shedding? We've soon every house will have will have solar and all these things. So we are in charge of our own destiny. We must take charge of our own destiny. But we must not only take charge of our own destiny. We must grab everyone next to you and close to you yeah. and work together as a community. Mm-hmm. And that's Springbok saying, stronger together. Yeah. It's flipping amazing. Yeah. And if we can select from 60 million people, Springboks, cricket players, business CEOs, business CFOs, can you imagine where this country can go versus New Zealand that can pick from 6 million people? So let's do away with this discriminatory attitude, trying to live in the past. Let's live in the future. We yeah. can't change the past. Let's change the future because that we can do. Perfect. Amazing. The one thing, though, South Africans have to admit to themselves is that they're resilient. Yeah. No matter what gets thrown at us, we keep moving. Yeah. We keep smiling. We keep singing through it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we saw the Gwijo squad and how it kept us all uplifted wow. to the point that they had to be taken all the way to the World Cup to keep the boys motivated. Yeah. It's resilience. It's understanding that no matter what is happening in our country, politically, socially, load shedding, that there's always a way forward yeah. and we keep it moving. Yep. Perfect. Guys, thank you so much. It was very insightful. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Awesome.